New York City's Caribbean neighborhoods are bright, lively, and full of music, but they face complex problems in fast-changing areas. East Flatbush and Crown Heights are nearly neighbors themselves, just two miles apart in central Brooklyn, while Richmond Hill is a bus and a subway away in Queens. They're both traditional and dynamic, the embodiment of the vibrant community who has built them. These Caribbean corners of NYC are most known for their mouthwatering food, but their flavor is far more expansive. My name is Annie Yetzi. I'm Laurel Poole. And I'm Michelle Ingreyes. This is Caribbean NYC for AM New York. We'll be taking you through these three neighborhoods and the islands that influence them. Also known as the Little Caribbean, Brooklyn's East Flatbush neighborhood is home to the largest and most diverse Caribbean-American Latinx community outside of the West Indies. Laughter and the faint smell of jerk chicken float through the air, and the streets are filled with folks coming and going. Laura Studley takes us there. On the intersection of Parkside and Flatbush Avenue, vendors sell food and drinks from stands and fruit out of large crates. People gather on sidewalks to eat and talk, and there's laughter, conversation, and music. It's a natural part of the landscape of this Brooklyn neighborhood. Dwight Dawkins has been selling corn soup for three years near Parkside Avenue subway station. His table holds a large silver pot of soup, sample cups, bowls, and napkins. A side reading Red's kitchen leans against the table leg. It's a really good neighborhood. Um, yes, every neighborhood has their good and bads. Unfortunately, you know, gang activity is the bad here, but there's a lot of good going on, you know. Um, everybody's trying to get their hustle, making their money, fruit stands, I'm selling corn soup. According to data from the NYPD, crime is up 4.2% since 2020 in this neighborhood. But Dawkins says despite the crime, people are still looking out for one another. They stick together. Like, my mom was one of the first to be selling food here, and she's happy. She buys food from them, they buy food from us, so it's all the community. Roderick Brown was once a sugarcane farmer in Jamaica, but there wasn't enough money to be made, so he came to America. Now he's selling coconut water, sugarcane, and jackfruit, usually at the Flatbush Canton Market. But today he is set up on the corner of Church and Flatbush Avenue. There's a lot of Caribbean people, so you carry Caribbean food, and they're used to it. That's a culture. So people go for it. Nice coconut water and all that. And he thinks everybody should drink coconut water. That's somebody who's just tasting it for the first time. That's a cultural stuff. That's the most naturally occurring juice of all juices. Brown also takes pride in his jackfruit, which is a spiky yellowish brown colored fruit. It's grown in Asia, Africa, and South America. Brown also says this fruit is definitely an island favorite. It was taken to the Caribbean and all the Caribbean islands by the Indians in the early days, you know? And it tastes nice. We just eat it. Jackfruit raw. Full belly. And we are right. <laughs> in East Flatbush, I'm Laura Studley. From fruits that feed the soul to specialty snacks from the Caribbean, East Flatbush foods have a citywide reputation. But rising food costs are creating problems for residents and business owners. Derek Carr tells us more. Like, so let's talk about, like, snail. That's a delicacy. It comes from West Africa itself. Something like that, I would have to do air. Lanita Denny is the owner of Lanita's African and Caribbean Specialty Market in East Flatbush. It sits between a Chinese restaurant and a printing shop. Lanita sells things Caribbean natives love, like Ovaltine, which gives a chocolate flavor, and Gari, a type of West African flower. But inflation has taken a toll, and educating her small customer base is another hardship. If they used to spending $5, now they have to spend $8, but you have a specialty market. So 
I am dealing with first generation, you know, people first coming into the country a lot. So, you know, I have to be able to explain and, you know, show them that this is not me. I'm not trying to just make money off of the community. But unfortunately, this is just how the cookie has crumbled. And it's cutting into our profits. I can't inflate any more for more profits so I can I can benefit because it's just not realistic. Like if someone's, I can't double it or triple it because I need, you know, to survive. <laughs> you just still have to do what the market is, is saying that is reasonable, too. 90% of Denny's inventory comes from overseas, like the Nigerian milk she sells in her store. Before, we were selling it for a dollar, the milk. Um, it's a small, like a four-ounce bottle. And that was a dollar, you know, a year ago, two years ago. It was no big deal. But now it's cost, I sell it for $2 realistically after shipping you know, all the exporting fees, everything. It, I really should be selling it for $3 just so oh I can make God. back the money. Denny says that she can't raise prices anymore, even though she's losing money. Make certain cuts and sacrifices, and now I sell it for $2. So realistically, I'm losing even having it. But there's no way for me to really sell it for the, the value price that I really should be selling it for because I'm then no one's going to buy it <laughs> at that point. To survive, Denny has to use her own money to keep the store afloat. I believe in the business. I believe what I'm doing, what I am doing for the community. And I just have to be patient, humble, and understanding through everything. And I believe everything's going to work out at the end of the day. I'm Derek Carr. Because of these rising costs, many residents in East Flatbush have to work more. Many healthcare workers are working extra hours and even multiple jobs to make ends meet. In addition to the stress these overworked nurses feel, their jobs in hospitals and nursing homes have gotten even harder with COVID-19. Many residents in the neighborhood are reluctant to get their vaccine as well, which makes stopping the spread of the pandemic more difficult. Annie Jonas tells us more. Much like the demographics of East Flatbush, the home care industry is majority female, majority POC, has a sizable immigrant population, and is low income. National median hourly wages for home care aides in 2018 were just $11.52. But it's not just inadequate wages that caused home care aides to leave the industry. The vaccine mandate, which hit in October, was also a major factor in the dwindling number of aides. Vaccine hesitancy among some Caribbean residents and healthcare workers got so bad that the New York City Department of Health had to send out a memo about it, a chief operating officer of a home care agency in East Flatbush says. He didn't want to give his name because of fear of reprisal. We got a memo from the Department of Health, New York State Department of Health at one point, saying that they saw in the Caribbean community that a lot of people uh, were not interested in taking the vaccination. As a result of the mandate, the agency lost about 10 percent of its workforce but it has since recovered and is now 100% vaccinated. Al Cardillo, CEO and president of the Home Care Association of New York State, breaks down three reasons why some home care aides might not want to roll up their sleeves. First, there were, I would say, a substantial number of religious objections to that. Second, we have individuals who are of childbearing age, you know, either uh, actively pregnant or actively planning uh, on having a family or prospectively planning on having a family family and not knowing what the impact of the vaccine would be. And third, there's another category of individuals that already had COVID and they're, uh, they're, they're holding on to their part of the science 
which is that natural immunity is as good or better than the vaccine. Cardillo tells me a story of a Jamaican home care aide who worried about not being able to support her family in Jamaica if she had bad side effects to the vaccine. She said to the agency, I'm not going to be vaccinated because I'm the main person who is the supporter of my family. If anything happens to me, they're compromised. Fear of the potential side effects of the vaccine is actually a pretty common sentiment. A University of Pennsylvania study of vaccine hesitancy among different racial and ethnic groups of healthcare workers found that 87% were hesitant out of fear of potential side effects of the vaccine. Black and Latino healthcare workers had the highest rates of vaccine hesitancy at 83% and 63.5% respectively. In East Flatbush, I'm Annie Jonas. Just like anywhere else, the COVID-19 pandemic has affected all aspects of life in East Flatbush. From work to play, people haven't been gathering in large groups. Jose Balderrama gives us the play-by-play of one East Flatbush sport excited to come back next season. In East Flatbush, people of all ages come to Wingate Park to play basketball or play football and soccer in the open fields. In the middle of all this is a netball court, which has recently been pretty empty. Netball is a sport played mostly by women here in East Flatbush and in Crown Heights. Netball is similar to basketball, with the biggest difference being the hoops have no backboards on them. Its popularity rose in Jamaica and Trinidad and Tobago, and is similarly popular here in Brooklyn's Little Caribbean neighborhoods. Here in Brooklyn, the local netball league has been canceled for the past two years because of the pandemic. Cheryl Howell, the president of the netball league, is working hard to make sure the league can start back up again soon. Well, hopefully... We can resume next year. We were watching the ratio rate of COVID-19. Um, we have to take all precautions um, to ensure that our public is not exposed to the virus. Even though the league hasn't been able to meet for a while, its players are still in contact with each other and even trying to stay in practice. Jacqueline Demon, one of the league's netball players, says his sport has helped her get involved with her community. You know, it gave us the opportunity to be um, involved in a community sport, helping us, you know, find ways instead of getting into the wrong area. We got mm-hmm. into a, it's a positive, positive outlook. And not only has it helped the women of East Flatbush grow closer together as a community, but it has also taught them valuable life lessons that they hope to pass on to others. Former netball player Jolene Farrell reflects on how netball changed her life for the better. I learned how to be very disciplined. I learned how to be a team player. It was also a way for me to keep active. I gained some sisters. Yeah. But it is it is a game that I would even like my daughters to play at some point because of the skills that I've, I've learned through netball. In East Flatbush, I'm Jose Balderrama. A quick subway ride north takes us from East Flatbush to Crown Heights. Here we find ourselves on the corner of No Strand and Atlantic Avenue. Since the 1830s, people from the West Indies have been migrating to New York City. Thanks to the Immigration and Nationality Act of 1965, which removed percentage caps on some countries' immigration to the U.S., a large community of Caribbean immigrants sprung up in Crown Heights, Brooklyn. The immigrant community has since defined the neighborhood's culture. Maggie Geiler reports on the Caribbean immigrant experience in Crown Heights today. I hop off the C train stop at Franklin and begin to wander along Nostrand Avenue, passing restaurants selling fried plantains and jerk chicken. 
listening to people sharing weekend plans with each other on busy sidewalks. I hear a friendly voice before I turn the corner to find a street filled with art. Paintings and photographs of Nelson Mandela and Ella Fitzgerald surround a smiling man who seems to know everybody that passes by. My, my, my name is Rasta Mandela, born Trinidad and Tobago. Been living in America for over 50 years now. I sells what you see. Mm? I deal with culture, black African culture. I sell all the pictures concerning majority of our leaders mm? and um, black people of all walks of life. Mandara, known by people passing by as Dada, sits down on a stool and begins to tell me about his life. It's been a while since I've been back home because this is considered my home right now. United States of America, New York City. I asked him to share about his journey from Trinidad and Tobago to Crown Heights, and he says... I was only about 13 years old at that time. To me, it was a joy to get on a big plane and come here to live in this country and to see how other people live in another country. You know, I'm 66 years of age. I have seven children born here. They all grown. They all um, are respected individuals, educated, and holding good jobs. A lot of people curse this country. I always say, God bless America. Next question. Let me get a cigarette first. <laughs> I'm sorry I don't have a seat for you. I don't mind. Okay. Dada gets up to light a cigarette and sells a painting of President Barack Obama to a customer. <laughs> Dada's journey to Crown Heights wasn't his choice in the beginning. He says living here hasn't always been easy. Over the years, many times, I, I decided I wanted to go back home. This place ain't no joke. Hmm? I have seen a lot of my friends perish, died in bad ways, all different kind of ways. Hmm? I'm only here through God Almighty Father. For instance, somebody calling me from Trinidad and Tobago and telling me they want to come here and can I help support them to come here, I would tell them no, you know. This is not the America that you... The Last Supper? Dada walks over to a merchant looking through art, selling a painting of The Last Supper. He says he doesn't want to answer any more questions, but invites me to come back and talk about life over a cigarette anytime. In Crown Heights, I'm Maggie Geiler. To many... A hallmark of success in the United States is business ownership. For black business owners who face disproportionate barriers in securing loans and leases, it is an act of building generational wealth. Melissa Wright checked out the thriving black-owned businesses in Crown Heights. Hip-hop music flows out of the pink-walled boutique and into the streets of Crown Heights. Looking inside the store, a dazzling diamond chandelier is seen hanging above a silver sofa. This little pink boutique is called Abundance. Racks of faux fur jackets, pearled blouses, and bedazzled dresses made for women of all sizes line the walls. Hope Lutz, the owner of Abundance Boutique, loves working alongside Black-owned businesses in the area. We do bounce off each other ideas, um, and we just motivate each other. And it's very uplifting and motivated to come out the door and to see someone of your color, right, and in your age bracket doing exactly what you're doing. So this is an awesome neighborhood. Just one month ago, Lutz and other business owners collaborated to host a pop-up shop. 
I had my first pop-up shop when I was like uh, one month into the business, and it was very successful. I had about maybe four other vendors here, and um, we did very well. I'm actually in the process of having another one in like the next two weeks. After her successful pop-up shop, Lutz won an award. A week ago, I was nominated uh, to be honored as a black business owner. So to actually receive an award already so early in the game, I was like ecstatic, and it's just amazing. As the demographics of Crown Heights change, Lutz believe diversity allows for businesses to grow. I'm surrounded by a lot of other black owners, black small businesses, um, and we all seem to be doing very well. So, but the downside of it, you know, we just got to get more of the community involved, and we just need, you know, not only black people, but we, we want to cater to everybody. During the pandemic, many black businesses struggled to stay open, but Lutz made it work opened up during the pandemic um, and business has been good for me unfortunately not for a lot of other people a lot of businesses and small businesses as a new black owned business owner Lutz values the community surrounding abundance boutique and get no better I wouldn't want to open up a business nowhere else I would love to be surrounded by my people this is awesome in Crown Heights I'm Melissa Wright like hope mentioned gentrification is a fact of life for business owners and neighborhood residents alike and the tide is only getting higher I went down to Crown Heights and talked to some of its residents about this troubling trend. Gentrification has been creeping into Crown Heights, from northern Bed-Stuy across Atlantic Avenue. As people started returning to New York City in the summer of 2021, the neighborhood has seen accelerated rent hikes and many newcomers moving in. Caribbean and local communities moving out and Lower Manhattan moving in. Adama Baru works at Murray's Corner, a sneaker and athletics store on No Strand and Atlantic. He's lived a few blocks away for over 18 years. Okay, my name is Adama Baru and I'm 44 years old. I live right here on Crown High on No Strand Avenue, Brooklyn, New York. Abaru says that in the last decade, he's watched neighbors move away from the area. From 2000 to 2015, the northern side of Crown Heights and Prospect Gardens saw a 205% increase in white residents and a 23% decrease in the number of black residents, according to census data. I will say financial, rent and mortgages are going very, very high and things are changing. And you know, anywhere Starbucks comes, that's mean things change. As cost of living increases, the stability of small businesses like Murray's Corner decreases. Abaru says that profits decreased by more than half over the last few years. There is no more buying power. After paying rent, utilities, and everything, there is no more room to really shop like before. Right across Nostrand Avenue, Abaru watched a friend's business close due to rent increases. The store was replaced by a wholesome foods market. It used to be a discount store owned by a Chinese couple, which I know. They used to pay, I believe, around $4,000 rent a month. Wholesome is paying $17,000. Kitty Corner from Murray's, another friend's restaurant closed, and developers tore the building down. They replace the space with a new high-rise. They have apartment for 8,000 a month. And I remember 18 years ago when I moved in this area, I rent my three-bedroom apartment for $900 a month. So. 
Abaru says he struggles with the idea of leaving, despite the growing reality that gentrification is making the neighborhood too expensive and forcing long-term residents out. I came for the American dream. I'm a student, I work, and take life day by day. Yeah. But it's a beautiful place. I like the multicultural, you know, there is no color, religion, or gender. Everyone lives together, I like that. That's the idea who pushed me to stay. Yeah. And of course, the food in this neighborhood is a delicious reason to stick around. Michelle Ingreyes taste-tested her way down the block, and she found some unbeatable treats. Food is one of the defining features of Caribbean culture in Crown Heights. Here, all sorts of Caribbean cuisine can be found, from Jamaican oxtail to a fusion of Chinese and Trinidadian plates. On Nostrand Avenue, on the corner of Dean Street, is a small restaurant called Trini Girl. The crisp scent of curried goat and jerk chicken flow outside the store and smell even better once you enter. Trini Girl is owned by Rowadi Ramcharan. My role is manager, the owner, and the cook. I am the one that's the mastermind behind everything that moves outside. Trini Girl is one of many Caribbean restaurants in the area that aim to serve the best and most authentic Trinidadian food possible. And as a child growing up, I looked at my mom cooking in the kitchen. And she said to me, come try this. And at 14 years, I was already cooking. So whatever my mom instilled in me as a child, it took me into making Trini Girl. Although Rowadi temporarily moved Trini Girl to Queens, she quickly came back to Crown Heights. What makes Crown Heights special for you? I think it's the appreciation for my authentic style Trinidad cooking. People here appreciate my food. People of all walks of life would come in and ask for a double. So they know what they're asking for. And what is a double, you might ask? It's Trini Girl's most well-known dish. And Rowadi was kind enough to give me and my photographer Nathan a free sample. Thank you so much. You're welcome. So what is what's in it? What does it consist of? You have two pieces of like bread. It's fried. And you have a chickpeas in the middle. What do you want, vegetarian? No meat in there. Ready for this? Oh, good. It's pretty good. I've never tasted anything like that before. While we'd never tasted food like that before going to Crown Heights, we certainly will again soon. Not before I show you the coconut rolls and pepper pot dishes in Richmond Hill. If you're looking for the best Caribbean food in New York City, it's hard to avoid Richmond Hill's Little Guyana. In May of this year, the city officially renamed the corner of Liberty Avenue and Lefferts Boulevard Little Guyana Avenue. Home to much of the city's Guyanese population, Richmond Hill in Queens is the roadie capital of the city. Maria Sanchez reports. The smell of roadie travels down the sidewalks of Liberty Avenue in Richmond Hill. The avenue shines with bright yellow and red flowers at every corner. Beautiful beaded dresses hanging from ceilings of stores and Afrobeats being blasted from cars driving through the hectic streets. This is Little Guyana. In 1992, Basie Heinrich migrated to Little Guyana, where she opened her own local jewelry shop called Rosal Fashion. At the front of the store is a glass display with silver and rose gold necklaces. 
This is where she rings up customers and sits during slow business hours. Yeah, I'm from Guyana. Yeah, when I came in this country, I I reach it. I walk very hard, very hard to achieve this. Henry applies this worth ethic in everything she does, including cooking. We cook our own food. What we like, we cook. What we eat, we cook. We like we food. What's your favorite thing to cook? Well, my favorite food is greens. I love snapper. Fry it and stew it. I love that. Although food is a huge part of what defines this community, it all comes down to the people. Here's Kevin Blood, who grew up in Little Guyana. Like, living amongst, you know that all of we are one. It's not about races. Even the African, the Chinese, whatever who are here, they are from Guyana as well. So it's like a community, that's why it's a little Guyana. One of the main reasons Guyanese people began to migrate to Richmond Hill is because of what the name represents to them. So Guyanese, like Richmond Hill, decided it's another thing. Guyanese know how to make their money. Okay. So that's where you get the Richmond Hill from. I love that. <laughs> <laughs> they are hardworking people, so no need to worry. Because without money over here, nothing can run. Liberty Avenue is the heartbeat of Little Guyana. The sidewalks are filled with women buying food at local markets, mom-and-pop stores, vendors slicing coconut with machetes, and children walking home from school. Although this may seem chaotic to some, to the Guyanese, South Asians, and Caribbeans who live here, this is home. Signing off, Maria Sanchez. For many, finding a home in Richmond Hill can be chaotic and overwhelming. Bureaucratic restrictions on housing and severe weather make living situations precarious. Frank Festa brings us more on the housing troubles in this neighborhood. When Hurricane Ida pummeled the Northeast two months ago, 11 people were found dead in their basement apartments across the city, several just a short walk away from the Atlantic Diner in Richmond Hill, where I met Mohammed Cuban Min for breakfast. In New York City, affordable housing looks like legalizing basement apartments. Mohammed, a Guyanese immigrant who moved to New York City in the 90s, is the executive director of the Caribbean Equality Project, a nonprofit based in Richmond Hill that advocates for the LGBTQ plus Caribbean community. Much of their work over the course of the pandemic sought to address Caribbean housing insecurity in Richmond Hill. We know that immigrant communities, particularly Caribbean communities, have their basements available where they rented to bring in an additional income. And right now, with Ida, with Hurricane Ida, we need to make sure that the city prioritize legalizing basements. In marginalized communities, basement apartments represent a grim reality. Housing is so expensive that homeowners are illegally renting their basements to vulnerable populations. Mohammed says that for a lot of legal affordable housing, you need an income of 60,000 plus. You need an income of 75,000 plus. Many Caribbean immigrant households have a joint income of, you know, 55 60,000, right? We're talking how our undocumented people are able to afford these units. New Yorkers who make bare minimum wage cannot afford these affordable housing. Even when the housing is affordable, landlords often take advantage of undocumented populations. We were reporting multiple cases weekly to the New York City Commission Human Rights of housing discrimination. Our undocumented folks, asylum seekers, were being threatened uh, by their landlord. Uh, you know, threats of, I'm going to call ICE on you, I'm going to call the NYPD on you. 
And this type of intimidation from landlord really harmed our community. We were already struggling to survive the pandemic. The Caribbean Equality Project started an emergency COVID relief fund that raised over $50,000 for Caribbean LGBTQ plus immigrants and asylum seekers. Mohammed says that oftentimes the biggest obstacle for vulnerable communities receiving aid is accessibility. Majority of the materials that are being disseminated in, in our communities are in English. We need materials in Urdu, we need materials in Bangla, we need materials in Punjabi, we need materials in Spanish. In Richmond Hill, this is Frank Festa. Each of the many languages spoken here represents a different niche of the culture. In the beginning of November, Richmond Hill celebrated Diwali, a festival of lights for Hindus, Sikhs, Jains, and some Buddhists. Rain Jung talks about religion with one of the celebrants. The diversity of cultures in Little Richmond and their acceptance of each other reminds Ashmami Misra Prasad of her home country, Guyana. Misra Prasad has lived in this Queen's neighborhood for over 20 years and feels seen by her unique community. Uh, Guyana is a country that is mixed. We have big Asian community because we have people come from China, people come from India, and people come from Africa. They were brought there as indentured laborers, but they still represented their culture there. She says Richmond Hill unites people. It's a neighborhood of single-family and Victorian-era homes, ethnic stores, churches, and mosques. Diversity is welcomed and cherished. So when they migrated to America, that's still in them. And now when they move here within this community, Richmond Hill, they still have that feeling that, hey, I'm still, like, people still see me. I'm still being represented. They have all these stores, all these people. It makes them feel cozy, happy. Traditional celebrations, especially religious ones that happen in the streets of Richmond Hill, strengthen these feelings of belonging. Uh, today's Diwali. The religion does help develop me as a person and it does basically maximize the relationship that I have with my parents as well. Religious gatherings are also a way for Mr. Prasad to celebrate both her family and her homeland. Uh, like I said, today's a big holiday, so we'll be celebrating together. We, you know, we cook lots of sweets at home. Uh, this is, you know, my way of feeling like, hey, this is, I'm celebrating my country and people, it's being incorporated with people all around me. Younger second generation immigrants like Misra Prasad celebrate their heritage, but are more open to different ways of understanding their background. Some place less emphasis on religion than their parents. My parents, they are very more strict with the religion and how to carry it on. Whereas, yes, they have taught me about the culture and the religion, but, you know, am I as strict about it? No. As of right now, it's just something that I was brought up in, so I know about, I understand about, I appreciate, and I respect it. Sometimes, this means that these young people leave Richmond Hill to celebrate, or not, somewhere else. With the younger generation, I feel like, yes, they might migrate and live in other places not, that isn't here. In Richmond Hill, I'm Rain Chong. While some young folks are leaving the neighborhood and religion behind, others are adding to the religious traditions of Richmond Hill. They are attending services and opening shops, and I was lucky enough to visit the neighborhood's first botanica. We have baths for probably everything that you could think of, from love to happiness to just clearing out negativity, all different kinds of spiritualizing baths. The name of the store is Divine Botanica and Spiritual Store. 
decorated with flower garlands and pennant flags, passers-by can't miss Carrie Chester's shop. It sits at 126th Street and Liberty Avenue. The heart of like Richmond Hill, Liberty Avenue is a very popular avenue. We have this uh, masjid next to us that, you know, they've kind of been under construction for a little while, but definitely a landmark here in this area too. Masjid is the Arabic word for mosque. Religious shops and houses of worship decorate this part of the avenue, called Liberty Heights, catering to Muslims, Sikhs, Jews, Christians, and Hindus. We sell a lot of religious items. We're a botanica, so we specialize in candles and oils, floor washes, things to clean out your house. So we also have things for like the Muslim religion, Christianity, Hindu, not just one specific religion in here. Chester opened her sweet-smelling store to fill a need that she saw in the neighborhood. There's no botanica in this area, probably within maybe like a couple mile range. So I figured might as well mesh the two together, a religious store for the Hindu community plus a botanica for everybody else in the area. Even though Divine Botanica opened just a year ago, Chester has had plenty of time to get to know her regulars. I've lived in this area all my life, I would say. My parents are originally from Guyana, and uh, they've actually been here for over 50 years. A lot of immigrants come, they, you know, make a home for themselves, they, you know, just look for better opportunities, and that's what they did, and, you know, they were able to provide that for the rest of us. Stories like Chester's can be found across New York City's Caribbean neighborhoods. The children of first-generation Guyanese, Jamaican, and Trini immigrants are building on the legacy that their parents began. Haitian and Dominican communities continue to energize their neighborhoods, honoring old traditions and creating new ones. Beyond the delicious foods in East Flatbush, Crown Heights, and Richmond Hill, sustenance for the soul is built right into the neighborhoods. They are a New York slice of the Caribbean islands. And once again, I'm Annie Yetzi. I'm Laurel Poole. And I'm Michelle Ingres. Thanks for listening.